Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup.com groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, London, Tokyo, Toronto and Zurich. Today we're going to speak with two very special guests. Welcome Robert Trigwell from the UN's International Organization for Migration and Kate Dodgson, who is a consultant with the Data Science Initiative. So we'd love to hear more about who you both are. Who wants to start? Maybe Kate, how about that? So I currently work as a consultant for the Data Science Initiative, which is a project of the City of The Hague. Um, as you may know, the, the City of The Hague is a city of peace, justice and security. But they're also the city of technology innovation in peace, justice and security. And The Hague wanted to know how advanced technology such as AI could be used for peace and justice. So they created the Data Science Initiative several years ago to explore this. And I've been working for them for this entire time. And we started looking at AI ethics about one year ago. My name is Rob Trigwell. I have a background in humanitarian relief work in Libya, Jordan, uh, Iraq, South Asia, Eastern Africa. Mostly, well, almost exclusively my uh, my humanitarian operations has been with NGOs and a little bit with some of the donor community. And then, but in the last few years, I work for the United Nations International Organization for Migration, IOM, where I'm a part of the Global Displacement Tracking Matrix Team, DTM. And I, I work a lot with some of the, the data and the technology kind of governance projects, understanding how we can innovate, um, use data uh, better, more effectively, more responsibly, but everything in a kind of ethical manner as well. So we um, respect the humanitarian principles that all of our organizations um, abide to as humanitarians. Great to meet you both. We'd love to hear about your collaboration and why you formed, Rob. Is that something you'd like to expand on and talk about? Absolutely. So, so Kate and I, amongst many other people, we kind of try we try and advocate for the innovative development but also the effective use of data science applications to support humanitarian outcomes and we kind of do this as part of a wider network called the data science network the data science and ethics group which is dseg and it was established a couple of years ago now because as ai is looking to be incorporated into you know, every sector around the world, the humanitarian sector is no different from that. So a lot of the data stakeholders were looking to kind of understand potentials of such technologies and methods to improve their program efficiencies, but also um, to become aware of any potential risks that may be involved as well with any adoption of technology or processes or methods. There's always a risk. So becoming aware of that. So since 2009, really, or, you know, not, there's no, in my opinion, there's no particular kickoff date, but, you know, the humanitarian innovation kind of discussion um, can be kind of academically linked to 2009 based on a, a big review by ALNAP. And, you know, from then on, you heard lots of the humanitarian innovation term become very popular. That's intertwined with the use of um, this kind of explosion of data initiatives in the sector. Uh, you know, um, DTM predates that, you know, if you look at a, a load of the existing data projects, they kind of around that time, give or take. And so in the last 10 years, 
are a little bit over. We've seen, you know, more data being collected in the sector. It's a better quality. Um, it's more interoperable uh, with each other. Um, it's better structured, such as you've got the humanitarian exchange languages to looking at data sets better talk together. There's more sharing of data, such as the humanitarian data exchange platform, HDX. So these are all been marvelous innovations for the sector, for the data, humanitarian data community. And, you know, it's improving efficiencies of programs, it's improving decision-making, because more people have access to kind of better data sets, there's more transparent about how they were collected and so on, so on, so on. So these are all, as I said, these are all marvelous kind of contributions to the sector. And I think we should all be very proud of, of this. But we should also, also be aware kind of what does all of this mean? How is data being used, particularly when it goes into more advanced models? Putting data into a pivot table is very different to putting data in a more of an advanced model, particularly because they become a bit more um, difficult to understand, a bit more difficult to communicate. So we, uh, many agencies were kind of thinking about these type of debates or discussion points. And as I said, there's a lot of data stakeholders in the, in the sector now. So we are kind of few of us got together um, and kind of bumped heads and thought what might, uh, you know, what are the what are the potential opportunities of all of this, but also what are the risks? So we kind of informally established this group in, two, um, in 2018, in June, um, to talk about these type of discussions. And one thing that we really wanted to emphasize within the group is that it just wasn't a data discussion. It was a humanitarian program and service delivery discussion. It was an, it was a, it was an ethics discussion. We kind of advocated for it to be multidisciplinary, in, including humanitarian stakeholders, data scientists from humanitarian organizations. So when I say program um, service delivery, I mean program staff. I had some um, donors um, and academics and think tanks and so on, so on, so on to discuss this. And uh, there'd been a lot of brilliant work done on principles, such as the Harvard um, Humanitarian Initiative Sigil Obligations, led by um, Nathaniel, Professor Nathaniel Raymond. And we kind of wanted to look at the roadmap of how to implement that and how to create like operational guidance for actors thinking or maybe even um, deploying data science methods for that humanitarian operations, but really to create some um, interagency kind of step-by-steps and, and guidance tools of how to do this. So we initially started with a mapping of concerns of what people were, of what people had, and of different agencies and of stakeholders with different backgrounds. And there was many things initially flagged, but there was a few, there was about five key uh, points that consistently uh, showed the face. And this was initially um, peer review or more the lack of peer review. So, you know, you had some data scientists at Organization B saying that, you know, we often develop these models independently, but we don't really, or we may develop them independently by themselves or within their team, but they don't really kind of go through that whole peer review system that you see, you see in the academic community. So that was something that very consistently was flagged amongst the stakeholders of the group. Accountability, um, who's accountable? Is it the person developing the system? Is it the person funding for it? Is it a project manager trying to improve the efficiency of their programs who are really pushing for a more te uh, technical solution, solution to that communication? How do you how do you communicate the, the complex process of 
but putting all these different data sets together into a model and or how do you communicate the results of it and how certain results inform certain decision-making processes? And how do you be inclusive to the beneficiaries, to the target populations of the, of the humanitarian caseload? Or how do you include various people within the program cycle and in, in supply chain or in the budget management or in the program development and then being and transparency? How, how, how do you make this a transparent process? So they were the five key things. So then, the first step was working towards this kind of peer review system, but it was very technical. It was basically, um, are we getting the maths right in one model and getting other data scientists to check the maths in another one? And so at the beginning of 2019, and this is a similar time to when Kate started engaging in discussions, was you can build something potentially te technically great, but is it ethically correct that you're doing so? And is it practical? If you can develop a model that is, shows very accurate forecast of displacement. If that displacement, say, is across a border and the results of that, that the border may be closed or, you know, it may increase vulnerability to the people moving across the border. I mean, there's there's big ethics in that process, despite inferior a model being technically good or bad. And then something can be ethically sound, technically good, but it just may not be practical for the context, for the operational context. So it's, it's a three-pronged discussion. And this is why we can't just look at it from a technical data science discussion. We have to look at it from an ethical, from a humanitarian stakeholder. And we kind of knew that from the beginning, which is why we took this wider, more holistic approach, um, stakeholder approach to the discussion. And this kind of led to the development of the framework for the use of advanced data science methods for the humanitarian sector that, that really tackles the ethical, practical, and technical discussions of this. We are very clear that this is uh, there's a legal component to that as well, but we deliberately stayed away from that because organisations um, have different legal protections, and also uh, regular. You know, we're, we're working with many people in many different countries many different legal frameworks you know there's too many rabbit holes to go down for so really just flagging about anyone engaging these these activities needed to need to understand their own legal regulations but we kind of didn't deliberately didn't go much further than that we kept it at a free approach um and then quickly so we kind of so we see this discussion as really a an overlap of kind of four circles and this is what our framework is really based upon it's the it's the juncture in no particular order of data responsibility so that includes protection security governance ai and ethics we said we use the term ai ethics a lot because it's more of a um historical term rather than data science ethics but we are talking about data science ethics it's not specific to ai but ai is the more popular term used and this is something that kate and i have receive feedback on some of our work but it's we kind of data science ethics then it's humanitarian innovation the, the work and humanitarian principles and standards for me that's the most important thing everything should be based on the standards so that's kind of the group and um, i'll let kate talk, maybe talk a little bit about the framework as she was an immense part of the development of that but that was kind of how the group come about and how we kind of come to start thinking about the need for this interagency framework on on this topic I just really want to emphasize the point that this really isn't a data responsibility discussion. It's not a development discussion. It's not a it's not a legal discussion. It's encompassing of so many things.
and this is why um many people that went on to develop the um the the core author team of the framework consists of a lawyer kate a humanitarian practitioner myself an academic um data scientists because it's not just an IT discussion. It's not just a SDG discussion. It's it's, it's it's encompassing so many different things. If you want to really apply it appropriately um, in an ethical, technical and practical manner. And now the three words that I always will come back to is that, you know, in order to, to really do this properly, you need to be thinking of, of those three things. So the thing that ties it all together is actually, oddly, all of them tie each other together because they're all overlapping of each other. Okay. Is there anything you want to add to that? I agree with Rob. The the juncture of all those topics raises new issues. And these new issues haven't been addressed yet. And that's why DSEC was formed. Because there are tons of data responsibility management policies out there. There are, we all know the humanitarian principles and standards. There are AI ethics principles scattered around different sectors. But they don't relate, they, there's nothing that links them together and the humanitarian AI problems uh, raise new issues and you can't just individually tap into these different subjects. It needs to be something that brings them all together. So that's what we wanted DSEG to be. Yeah, and that's something that we've tried to do by, in in all of our work, I can't remember the, imagine, the amount of citations that are in it, but if you want to know about data protection, you know, you're directed the the marvelous ICRC's data protection manual, IOM's data protection manual. If you want to know about data responsibility, you've got OCHA's, you've got the Red Cross 510's data responsibility guides. You know, if you want to know about innovation programs, then you have ELRA's innovation work. If you want to know about humanitarian principles, you, you're directed there, standards such as sphere standards and core, core humanitarian standards. So, so the DSEG is kind of like not really developing anything new. It's more presenting many different disciplines overlap to each other and kind of presenting. It's like a collation of key resources on a very new and slightly misunderstood and potentially overhyped topic in a, in a sector where innovation is challenged for a number of reasons. Small budgets, very vulnerable caseloads difficult operating environments, um, no uh, really R&D ability because we can't use humanitarian context for tests, for tests, that's unethical completely. So there's many reasons why innovation is challenging and there's lots and lots and lots of literature on this. And, but again, in a, but when resources are limited, you kind of do need to innovate so it's it's like a double-edged sword so you really need to be aware of all the facets of this discussion to really do it appropriately what a massive amount of work you've all put into this and kate maybe we can um, move into the framework now is this a good time to to start talking about that incredible framework of yours uh, it was launched when was it last month the framework for the ethical use of advanced data science in the humanitarian sector. So cool. I think it's so cool. I, I just read it and, and I've got this timeline in front of me um, dating pre-2013 and it, it takes us to 2020. And here we are. How was it decided, you know, that the whole framework, the content, it, it, what an undertaking and do you want to, is this when you, you jumped in and what was yeah. your role? Sure. 
So I was doing data science and ethics work for the city of The Hague. And I started being interested in the topic of humanitarian and development uses of AI. In my investigations and trying to figure out who was doing what UN bodies, what NGOs, what charities were using AI, I got connected with Rob. And he told me that he was doing some work with, with the DSEG and that they were hoping to put together such a framework, sort of a practical guidance book, so that in the future, an NGO that's interested in using AI have a tool that they can use, something, they, a resource they can refer to. So I said, okay, I'm doing the same kind of work. The Hague's interested in this. Why don't we do it together? So that's how we sort of started really knuckling down on this particular project. And what we did was we wanted to help anyone who's interested in humanitarian AI, no matter how much experience they have. So someone who has no idea what AI, AI could be used for, all the way down to data scientists who build models all the time but don't understand the ethical implications of it. So we knew what we had to do was map the sort of life cycle of a data science project in the humanitarian sector. And you know, the first thing we realized was it's not always linear. It's not always chronological. People are going to come in at different points with different resources, different amount of data, etc. But we needed to create what sort of in, in inverted commas, the ideal or the typical timeline, starting from ideation through to searching for partners and collaborators, to checking your data, to checking your algorithm, to checking your outputs. So we decided to try and create stages that people can recognize as the, the traditional process of a data science lifecycle. But we also recognize that there are some principles and some sort of fundamental knowledge that you need to have before you can even contemplate AI. So we had to include a stage zero in our data science lifecycle. And that stage zero basically says, before you even consider AI, please make sure you're familiar with issues like human rights, basic data responsibility, risk mitigation, uh, humanitarian principles and standards. And also, although it seems sort of chicken and the egg, you do need a basic knowledge of AI ethics before you can delve deeper into actually using AI. So in our data life cycle, data science life cycle, we start with the fundamentals, which is stage zero. And then we take readers through the framework, through the different chapters, which I mentioned before. And within each of those chapters, we raise the ethical issues that that particular stage of a, life, a data science project might raise. And then we provide them with tips for how to overcome them. And we also provide warnings where we say to people, it may be too risky, it may be too much of a barrier to overcome. But as Rob mentioned before, we don't necessarily invent new material. We say to them, here's an ethical issue, Here's how you can overcome it. Harvard Berkman Klein's written a brilliant article on it. Go to that. Or Ocha's written a, a wonderful guidance note on it. Go to that. So we sort of point them in the direction of where they can find resources to tackle the ethical challenge that we've presented. Right. Thanks. And you've got here, you plotted the data science journey. You've already mentioned some of the processes, but did you want to talk about the data science journey from that point of view? Sure. So as I mentioned, it starts with the fundamentals where you need to have a basic knowledge of some basic principles. Then you go to the problem recognition stage because technosolutionism is not promoted in humanitarian innovation. You should always understand the problem you are facing and work from the problem upwards rather than starting with the solution and trying to find a problem to attach it to. So we, we talk people through how to recognize a problem, how to analyze the problem, and then see whether or not AI is applicable. So the next stage is looking at the suitability of data science. 
if you're just using data science because you've got a grant for it or because it's the new buzzword, then we suggest rethink. You go back to your problem and assess whether or not data science does actually offer something extra, whether that's speed, efficiency, analyzing big data, automating. There needs to be a reason for using data science other than the shiny buzzword of it. Then we look at building teams. So a lot of NGOs won't have internal capacity. So we, we suggest you, you reach out to other NGOs who have done similar projects, tech companies that have worked on a private sector version of that particular problem. We talk about having diverse teams, about having someone with legal knowledge, someone with human rights, with um, field experience. And of course, you need the techies, but you need that, that team to be diverse. Otherwise, it's going to be a really one-sided project. Then we, one of the biggest chapters of our framework is looking at data because there's so many things that can go wrong. You, you Garbage in, garbage out. You've got to make sure you've got the right, complete data that's, you know, check for biases. Got to make sure that this data has been consented to, the collection of it, the retention of it, storage, et cetera. And then if you're satisfied that your data is sufficient enough for an algorithm, then there are lots of issues that come up with the algorithm itself, the, the understandability, the transparency, and, then if the algorithm is satisfied, if you're happy that your model is fair and clear and whatnot, then it's the reliance on the outputs. So the, the algorithm's going to give you some results. And what do you do with them? Do you use them simply as a piece of evidence or do you rely on them? Do you automate a decision based on that algorithm or do you have human in the loop? So that's the, the journey that we mapped. But we, as we said, we recognize that people can come in at any stage but if they were starting from scratch, we would suggest you follow that process. Yeah, and Rob, I think we were chatting earlier. You mentioned there needs to always be a human in the loop from your experience, especially in the field. Is there something you want to sort of add to what Kate's saying here about the, um, the data science journey and the framework? I think, Kate, something she mentioned earlier is that this even though we've done steps zero to four rather than one to five, it's because step zero is the fundamentals. We don't see that as a step. We see it as the foundations, humanitarian principles and ethics, data science ethics, data responsibility, human rights, mis risk mitigation. Now the, now the foundations of any project, data science or not, or with the exception of, of AI ethics, you know, if you were doing a, a different type of program. And that's deliberately why we've, we've labeled that fairly confusingly step zero because it is a foundation it's 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 what is uh, the project should be built upon not um not as part of the brickwork um and something kate also said and she's absolutely right is is about the uh this isn't a linear process but so even though we've put these steps sequentially sequentially it's like you know you iterate you come back you fail you walk backwards you move you walk backwards to move forward um so even though we've kind of labeled them in this order, it is more just, um, it's more about the critical steps of a program. That's kind of like running, run, you know, making sure that each step and each process has been critically assessed in, in, the, in the right manner. Um, it's kind of one of the things we're, try, we're trying to convey, you know, if you, um, yeah, like uh, the pro, you know, the problems always come first, but how you uh, work, particularly the, the data journey. Um, there's many um, different ways you can do that data journey, but I think most people would agree that the various different steps are necessary, regardless if the order's not in place. Um, yeah, 
just kind of having that critical perspective, trying to understand what what are the going to be the outputs of the programs, what are going to be the intended and unintended consequences of the projects, and what are the risks. And um, you know, in order to, everything has risk, so you have to do a risk assessment in order to move forward. And I think that the cycle, the life cycle of, the, of, of going through the framework and the decision tree that we'll get onto in just a moment mm-hmm. is a good way to do that um, for a fairly complex topic where, you know, AI is not an everyday used term. It's a very misunderstood term within the sector. So a little bit of guidance is most definitely necessary. You know, when you go beyond the data science community within the sector, talking about AI may become a bit abstract and a bit theoretical. So giving some sort of, of direction of, of how potentially should to direct the project is is basically what this, this framework's about. Right. What we realised after we wrote the framework was we were happy that we had got what we consider as much relevant information as we could into one document, but we acknowledge that it's a 50-page document and not everybody has the time or inclination to read it. So we wanted to turn it into a practical, useful tool, which could be used by a field worker, someone in the field. It could be used by a data scientist working in headquarters. It could be used by a grants development officer who's just coming up with new ideas. Um, and we want it to be a, a really easy click-through question, question-answer process, which runs through all the same material as the, the framework, but in a much easier click-through friendly manner. You know, it doesn't have all the citations and it's got sort of more links, etc. So what we'd recommend is if someone had an idea about how AI could be used, but weren't sure whether or not it's the right tool or whether or not there were going to be too many issues that it raised, we'd recommend that they use this decision tree. And that would run them through all the stages that we spoke about previously in the framework so that they can double check. Well, either it can guide them as to how to do it for the first time, or they can double check that the processes they've done have gone through this sort of ethics test. So if you want an example of where AI could sort of initially be a good idea, but could go potentially wrong, perhaps, Rob, you can give the example of closing borders. Yeah, this is purely theoretical. But if you're talking about forecasting displacement and you've developed an agent-based model, could be in an academic institute, could be wherever, and you've developed a model that may forecast movement based on flooding or based on conflict. And that could be a regional model, so people may move geographically across a border. And if you were to publish that, you could publish that with good intent to I don't know, maybe advocate for humanitarian corridors or maybe advocate for a number of different purposes. But you could also potentially highlight where maybe borders may get closed and cause an exacerbation to their vulnerability and vis-a-vis break the do-no-harm principle. So that could be an example where you're doing a good intention project could cause harm. Great. Uh, Shall we go back to Kate? Thanks so much for getting that segue into the ethical AI decision tree and how that came to be, because, you know, it does make sense. We don't have a linear framework and and a tree is a really practical tool to sort of navigate and use. So did you want to maybe introduce it a little bit, why it was created, what it looks like, current status? Is that something you want to continue talking about? So we created the decision tree to 
basically put the framework in a more accessible, usable tool. And we did that by using, well, first of all, we made a physical sort of decision tree with boxes and arrows and saying, what happens if you, if you pass this stage, then what happens? What's the next stage? What happens if you don't pass that stage? Where do you go back to, et cetera? So it began in sort of a flow chart where we could physically see where the directions are going. But this is quite hard to, to read for a, for a user who hasn't built it themselves. So we wanted to put it into a web page, which is very simple. A message comes on the screen asking you a question. You click yes or you click no. If you click no, you're most likely to be taken to a page where it gives you an explanation or tips on how to get to the next stage. So you make your way through the decision tree. And if you make it to the end, we sort of say, congratulations, you've done a pretty good ethical review. We're not saying your project's perfect, but you've considered a lot of aspects along the way. We put that together, the team who wrote the, the framework. And as I said, the material almost exclusively comes from our framework, which means it does touch into millions of other resources, but that's just the source of it. We didn't want it to just be us. We, our eyes have been focusing on it for a while now. So we, we realized that we need outside review. So we've sent it out to literally over a hundred NGOs uh, UN bodies and universities to ask for their review and even within the last few hours we've been getting replies from them saying yes we'll, we'd love to review it so we're going to get their feedback we want ethicists to tell us no we want more ethics we want techies to say I don't understand the ethics please explain the ethics we want um, all these different opinions so that we can try and make the decision tree as encompassing and as useful as possible so for the next few weeks we're going to leave it open for the review then we're going to implement the review and then we're going to publish it so that it can be a tool used by anyone at any point. That's great. That just reminds me, maybe we need to talk a little bit about the team. Is the team that worked on the framework the same team on the ethical AI decision tree? And please let us, uh, please introduce the, the main writers and their roles and experience. We'd love to acknowledge that. The two main coordinating bodies of DSEG are IOM DTM and the Data Science Initiative from The Hague. And within the main team that does most of the writing and the research, we have a humanitarian practitioner, we have a lawyer, we have an academic, uh, we have a data scientist, and we have a project manager. So it, it's a diverse team. That's the immediate team, but in writing the framework, interviews were done with field staff. Interviews were done with ethicists, um, with data responsibility experts, and we tried and technologists and we tried to gauge from them what they wanted. Then when we put the, the core team put together the framework, we sent it back and we sent it to universities, NGOs, UN, Red Cross bodies. We wanted to get as many different views as possible. And then we 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 went through, I think, 40 versions of the of the framework. And when we're finally happy with it, we put it online. But now we're doing the same process with a decision tree because we really want to make sure that it's not just us writing for them. We want it to be them contributing as well. So anyone who's got an interest in the topic is welcome to give us feedback and see if they can add to it. And we, we want if organizations have useful tools, for example, 510 Red Cross, that's the Dutch data team in the, in the Netherlands, they have a, created a really cool algorithm checker, which checks the accuracy, the transparency of the algorithm. And so in our, in our decision tree and in our framework, we say, use their tool as well. Don't just use ours, use theirs. This is a brilliant tool and they, they work, they, they complement one another. So that's what we're aiming to do. If people have resources themselves or, or documents or principles or anything that we've missed out, we're happy for people to get in touch with us so that we can include it as well once it's been sort of reviewed to make sure it fits within 
within our framework. I just wanted to add one last thing. I mean, the nature of the sector is, is that of kind of coordination. You know, it's there's the architecture of the system. There's, um, there's the cluster system. It's it's a coordination. Um, the architecture is that of coordination, as I said. So if you really ever want to properly develop something in the system to be adopted by those involved, you need to do it through coordination and collaboration. So this is why engaging with the NGO field staff, the UNHQ, the uh, the, the think tanks such as PSI, to kind of get that all-inclusive approach, different perspectives, different organizations have different mandates, to kind of get all of that to include it because that way then you're then you are just trying to be more more inclusive of each agency's kind of goals and operations and kind of respect the the coordination structure of the system and, that, and that's kind of what we're trying to do right now so something quite interesting here the forecasting human mobility in context of crises the workshop report that was published do you want to talk a little bit about that and just the whole topic of forecasting and interdisciplinary exchange and the findings and future of those findings, Rob and Kate. Yeah, I mean, so the report you're referring to is one based um, from a workshop in Berlin in, um, in late October of 2019. And it was a multidisciplinary um, work, three-day workshop with uh, humanitarian practitioners, a number of uh, UN and NGOs who are involved in some sort of forecasting, whether it's from human mobility forecasting, whether it's from disease spread forecasting, whether it's from um, food security forecasting, uh, whether it's from risk financing. Uh, there was also academic uh, communities who, who do similar stuff around the same topics, but obviously, you know, the output is more to generate academic kind of content. And then there was the policy stakeholders as well. So it was basically, it was policy academic and humanitarian, all kind of doing similar processes, but um, within their various kind of disciplines, should we say. And it was looking at um, who's doing what, what are the challenges, what are the ethical considerations, what are the opportunities, and also what are the, and then most importantly what are the solutions to all of this like um, it's not all about talking about the challenges developing solutions in in order so organizations and communities can still progress and innovate but in a more of a kind of structured and safer way and um yes yeah, so that was about so we, we published a report and at, at the end of last year the beginning of 2020 and to really demonstrate that but but data but forecasting is just a subset of the kind of data science discussions that's great yeah it makes sense that data science would really bring in lots of incredible insights to the humanitarian space so from each of you just a takeaway to our humanitarian audience listening to us today is there something you'd like to share? Any insights um, as a takeaway, Kate and Rob, before we we wrap things up? It's actually more that we would like to get some insights and knowledge from your audience. Um, we want to know if this tool is useful. Otherwise, we've created it for nothing. We want to make sure that people can use it, can navigate it. If there are gaps in there. Would like to know about it. Great. And how about you, Rob? Yeah, I mean. Just kind of coming back to the beginning of the talk is that 
we should always start at this humanitarian case so that the vulnerable populations we should start with their needs and the problems on the ground and if programs can be the efficiency can be approved and improved through the application of technology or data science applications then great and if they can't be then they shouldn't be forced and you know techno socialism is something that we are against and we advocate for you know having a problem and exploring the solutions to solve the problem and all of this needs to be based all of our activities need to be based on humanitarian principles because the foundations of what define us as humanitarians absolutely well I think that brings us to a close. Thank you so much, Robert Trigwell from the UN's International Organization for Migration and Kate Dodgson, who is a consultant with the Data Science Initiative at The Hague. Thank you so very much for sharing your insights with us. That brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.